Day 2 of Totus Tuus' Novena With quotes from John Paul II's encyclical Evangelium Vitae God did not make death and he does not delight in the death of the living for he has created all things that they might exist. God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world, and those who belong to his party experience it. The gospel of life, proclaimed in the beginning when man was created in the image of God, for a destiny of full and perfect life, is contradicted by the painful experience of death, which enters the world and casts its shadow of meaninglessness over man's entire existence. Death came into the world as a result of the devil's envy and the sin of our first parents. And death entered it in a violent way through the killing of Abel by his brother Cain. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. This first murder is presented with singular eloquence in a page of the book of Genesis which has universal significance. It is a page rewritten daily, with inexorable and degrading frequency, in the book of human history. Let us reread together this biblical account, which, despite its archaic structure and its extreme simplicity, has much to teach us. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had not regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to Abel his brother, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell, because the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The biblical text does not reveal the reason why God prefers Abel's sacrifice to Cain's. It clearly shows, however, that God, although preferring Abel's gift, does not interrupt his dialogue with Cain. He admonishes him, reminding him of his freedom in the face of evil. Man is in no way predestined to evil. Certainly, like Adam, he is tempted by the malvolent force of sin, which, like a wild beast, lies in wait at the door of his heart, ready to leap on its prey. But Cain remains free in the face of sin. He can and he must overcome it. It's desirous for you, but you must master it. Envy and anger have the upper hand over the Lord's warning, 
And so Cain attacks his own brother and kills him. As we read in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in the account of Abel's murder by his brother Cain, Scripture reveals the presence of anger and envy in man, consequences of original sin from the beginning of human history. Man has become the enemy of his fellow man. Brother kills brother. Like the first fratricide, every murder is a violation of the spiritual kinship uniting mankind in one great family, in which all share the same fundamental good, equal personal dignity. Not infrequently the kinship of flesh and blood is also violated. For example, when threats to life arise within the relationship between parents and children, such as happens in abortion, or when, in the wider context of family or kinship, euthanasia is encouraged or practised. At the root of every act of violence against one's neighbour, there is a concession to the thinking of the evil one, the one who was a murderer from the beginning. As the Apostle John reminds us, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, and not be like Cain who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Cain's killing of his brother at the very dawn of history is thus a sad witness of how evil spreads with amazing speed. Man's revolt against God in the earthly paradise is followed by the deadly combat of man against man. After the crime, God intervenes to avenge the one killed. Before God, who asks him about the fate of Abel, Cain, instead of showing remorse and apologising, arrogantly eludes the question, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? I do not know. Cain tries to cover up his crime with a lie. This was, and still is, the case, when all kinds of ideologies try to justify and disguise the most atrocious crimes against human beings. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain does not wish to think about his brother, and refuses to accept the responsibility which every person has towards others. We cannot but think of today's tendency for people to refuse to accept responsibility for their brothers and sisters. Symptoms of this trend include the lack of solidarity towards society's weakest members, such as the elderly, the infirm, immigrants, children, and the indifference frequently found in relations between the world's peoples, even when basic values such as survival, freedom and peace are involved. But God cannot leave the crime unpunished. From the ground on which it has been spilt, the blood of the one murdered demands that God should render justice. From this text, the Church has taken the name of the sins which cry to God for justice, and first among them, she has included willful murder. For the Jewish people, as for many peoples of antiquity, blood is the source of life. Indeed, the blood is the life and life, especially human life, belongs only to God. For this reason, whoever attacks human life in some way attacks God himself. Cain is cursed by God, and also by the earth, which will deny him its fruit. He is punished. He will live in the wilderness and the desert. Murderous violence profoundly changes man's environment. From being the Garden of Eden a place of plenty, of harmonious interpersonal relationships, and of friendship with God. The earth becomes the land of Nod, a place of scarcity, loneliness, and separation from God. Cain will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Uncertainty and restlessness will follow him forever. And yet God, who is always merciful even when he punishes, put a mark on Cain, lest any who came upon him should kill him. He thus gave him a distinctive sign, not to condemn him to the hatred of others, but to protect and defend him from those wishing to kill him, even out of a desire to avenge Abel's death. Not even a murderer loses his personal dignity, and God himself pledges to guarantee this. It is precisely here that the paradoxical mystery of the merciful justice of God is shown forth. As St. Ambrose writes, 
once the crime is admitted at the very inception of this sinful act of parricide, then the divine law of God's mercy should be immediately extended. If punishment is forthwith inflicted on the accused, then men in the exercise of justice would in no way observe patience and moderation, but would straightway condemn the defendant to punishment. God drove Cain out of his presence and sent him into exile far away from his native land, so that he passed from a life of human kindness to one which was more akin to the rude existence of a wild beast. God, who preferred the correction rather than the death of a sinner, did not desire that a homicide be punished by the exaction of another act of homicide. The Lord said to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. The voice of the blood shed by men continues to cry out, from generation to generation, in ever new and different ways. The Lord's question, What have you done? which Cain cannot escape, is addressed also to the people of today, to make them realize the extent and gravity of the attacks against life which continue to mark human history, to make them discover what causes these attacks and feeds them, and to make them ponder seriously the consequences which derive from these attacks for the existence of individuals and peoples. Some threats come from nature itself, but they are made worse by the culpable indifference and negligence of those who could in some cases remedy them. Others are the result of situations of violence, hatred and conflicting interests, which lead people to attack others through murder, war, slaughter and genocide. And how can we fail to consider the violence against life done to millions of human beings, especially children, who are forced into poverty, malnutrition and hunger, because of an unjust distribution of resources between peoples and between social classes. And what of the violence inherent not only in wars as such, but in the scandalous arms trade, which spawns the many armed conflicts which stain our world with blood? What of the spreading of death caused by reckless tampering with the world's ecological balance, by the criminal spread of drugs, or by the promotion of certain kinds of sexual activity, which, besides being morally unacceptable, also involve grave risks to life. It is impossible to catalogue completely the vast array of threats to human life, so many other forms, whether explicit or hidden, in which they appear today. Here, though, we shall concentrate particular attention on another category of attacks, affecting life in its earliest and in its final stages, Attacks which present new characteristics with respect to the past, and which raise questions of extraordinary seriousness. It is not only that in generalised opinion these attacks tend no longer to be considered as crimes. Paradoxically, they assume the nature of rights, to the point that the state is called upon to give them legal recognition, and to make them available through the free services of healthcare personnel. Such attacks strike human life at the time of its greatest frailty, when it lacks any means of self-defence. Even more serious is the fact that, most often, these attacks are carried out in the very heart of, and with the complicity of the family, the family which, by its nature, is called to be the sanctuary of life. How did such a situation come about? Many different factors have to be taken into account. In the background, there is the profound crisis of culture, which generates scepticism in relation to the very foundations of knowledge and ethics, and which makes it increasingly difficult to grasp clearly the meaning of what man is, the meaning of his rights and his duties. Then there are all kinds of existential and interpersonal difficulties, made worse by the complexity of a society in which individuals, couples and families are often left alone with their problems. There are situations of acute poverty, anxiety or frustration in which the struggle to make ends meet, the presence of unbearable pain or instances of violence, especially against women, make the choice to defend and promote life so demanding as sometimes to reach the point of heroism. All this explains, at least in part, 
how the value of life can today undergo a kind of eclipse, even though conscience does not cease to point to it as a sacred and inviolable value, as is evident in the tendency to disguise certain crimes against life in its early or final stages by using innocuous medical terms which distract attention from the fact that what is involved is the right to life of an actual human person. In fact, while the climate of widespread moral uncertainty can in some way be explained by the multiplicity and gravity of today's social problems, and these can sometimes mitigate the subjective responsibility of individuals, it is no less true that we are confronted by an even larger reality, which can be described as a veritable structure of sin. This reality is characterized by the emergence of a culture which denies solidarity and in many cases takes the form of a veritable culture of death. This culture is actively fostered by powerful cultural, economic and political currents which encourage an idea of society excessively concerned with efficiency. Looking at the situation from this point of view, it is possible to speak in a certain sense of a war of the powerful against the weak, a life which would require greater acceptance, love and care, is considered useless, or held to be an intolerable burden, and is therefore rejected in one way or another. A person who, because of illness, handicap, or more simply just by existing, compromises the well-being or lifestyle of those who are more favoured, tends to be looked upon as an enemy to be resisted or eliminated. In this way, a kind of conspiracy against life is unleashed. This conspiracy involves not only individuals in their personal, family or group relationships, but goes far beyond, to the point of damaging and distorting, at the international level, relations between peoples and states. In order to facilitate the spread of abortion, enormous sums of money have been invested and continue to be invested in the production of pharmaceutical products which make it possible to kill the fetus in the mother's womb without recourse to medical assistance. On this point, scientific research itself seems to be almost exclusively preoccupied with developing products which are ever more simple and effective in suppressing life and which at the same time are capable of removing abortion from any kind of control or social responsibility. It is frequently asserted that contraception, if made safe and available to all, is the most effective remedy against abortion. The Catholic Church is then accused of actually promoting abortion because she obstinately continues to teach the moral unlawfulness of contraception. When looked at carefully, this objection is clearly unfounded. It may be that many people use contraception with a view to excluding the subsequent temptation of abortion. But the negative values inherent in the contraceptive mentality, which is very different from responsible parenthood, lived in respect for the full truth of the conjugal act, are such that they in fact strengthen this temptation when an unwanted life is conceived. Indeed, the pro-abortion culture is especially strong precisely where the Church's teaching on contraception is rejected. Certainly, from the moral point of view, Contraception and abortion are specifically different evils. The former contradicts the full truth of the sexual act as the proper expression of conjugal love, while the latter destroys the life of a human being. The former is opposed to the virtue of chastity in marriage. The latter is opposed to the virtue of justice and directly violates the divine commandment, You shall not kill. But despite their differences of nature and moral gravity, Contraception and abortion are often closely connected, as fruits of the same tree. It is true that in many cases, contraception and even abortion are practiced under the pressure of real-life difficulties, which nonetheless can never exonerate from striving to observe God's law fully. Still, in very many other instances, such practices are rooted in a hedonistic mentality, unwilling to accept responsibility in matters of sexuality, and they imply a self-centred concept of freedom, which regards procreation as an obstacle to personal fulfilment. The life which could result from a sexual encounter, 
thus becomes an enemy to be avoided at all costs, and abortion becomes the only possible decisive response to failed contraception. The close connection which exists in mentality between the practice of contraception and that of abortion is becoming increasingly obvious. It is being demonstrated in an alarming way by the development of chemical products, intrauterine devices and vaccines which, distributed with the same ease as contraceptives, really act as abortifacents in the very early stages of development of the life of the new human being. The various techniques of artificial reproduction, which would seem to be at the service of life and which are frequently used with this intention, actually open the door to new threats against life. Apart from the fact that they are morally unacceptable, since they separate procreation from the fully human context of the conjugal act, these techniques have a high rate of failure. Not just failure in relation to fertilization, but with regard to the subsequent development of the embryo, which is exposed to the risk of death, generally within a very short space of time. Furthermore, the number of embryos produced is often greater than that needed for the implantation in the woman's womb and these so-called spare embryos are then destroyed or used for research, which, under the pretext of scientific or medical progress, in fact reduces human life to the level of simple biological material to be freely disposed of. Prenatal diagnosis, which presents no moral objections if carried out in order to identify the medical treatment which may be needed by the child in the womb all too often becomes an opportunity for proposing and procuring an abortion. This is eugenic abortion, justified in public opinion on the basis of a mentality, mistakenly held to be consistent with the demands of therapeutic interventions, which accepts life only under certain conditions, and rejects it when it is affected by any limitation, handicap or illness. Following the same logic, the point has been reached where the most basic care, even nourishment, is denied to babies born with serious handicaps or illnesses. The contemporary scene, moreover, is becoming even more alarming by reason of the proposals advanced here and there to justify even infanticide, following the same arguments used to justify the right to abortion. In this way, we revert to a state of barbarism which one had hoped had been left behind forever. Threats which are no less serious hang over the incurably ill and the dying, in a social and cultural context which makes it more difficult to face and accept suffering. The temptation becomes all the greater to resolve the problem of suffering by eliminating it at the root, by hastening death so that it occurs at the moment considered most suitable. Various considerations usually contribute to such a decision all of which converge in the same terrible outcome. In the sick person, the sense of anguish, of severe discomfort, and even of desperation, brought on by intense and prolonged suffering, can be a decisive factor. Such a situation can threaten the already fragile equilibrium of an individual's personal and family life, with the result that, on the one hand, the sick person despite the help of increasingly effective medical and social assistance, risks feeling overwhelmed by his or her own frailty. And on the other hand, those close to the sick person can be moved by an understandable, even if misplaced, compassion. All this is aggravated by a cultural climate which fails to perceive any meaning or value in suffering, but rather considers suffering the epitome of evil, to be eliminated at all costs. This is especially the case in the absence of a religious outlook which could help to provide a positive understanding of the mystery of suffering. On a more general level, there exists in contemporary culture a certain Promethean attitude which leads people to think that they can control life and death by taking the decisions about them into their own hands. What really happens in this case is that the individual is overcome and crushed by a death deprived of any prospect of meaning or hope. We see a tragic expression of all this in the spread of euthanasia. Disguised and surreptitious, or practised openly and even legally. As well as for reasons of a misguided pity at the sight of the patient's suffering, 
euthanasia is sometimes justified by the utilitarian motive of avoiding costs which bring no return and which weigh heavily on society. Thus, it is proposed to eliminate malformed babies, the severely handicapped, the disabled, the elderly, especially when they are not self-sufficient, and the terminally ill. Nor can we remain silent in the face of other more furtive, but no less serious and real, forms of euthanasia. These could occur, for example, when, in order to increase the availability of organs for transplants, organs are removed without respecting objective and adequate criteria which verify the death of the donor. Another present-day phenomenon, frequently used to justify threats and attacks against life, is the demographic question. This question arises in different ways in different parts of the world. In the rich and developed countries, there is a disturbing decline or collapse of the birth rate. The poorer countries, on the other hand, generally have a high rate of population growth, difficult to sustain in the context of low economic and social development, and especially where there is extreme underdevelopment. In the face of overpopulation in the poorer countries, instead of forms of global intervention at the international level, serious family and social policies, programs of cultural development and of fair production and distribution of resources, anti-birth policies continue to be enacted. Contraception, sterilization and abortion are certainly part of the reason why in some cases there is a sharp decline in the birth rate. It is not difficult to be tempted to use the same methods and attacks against life also where there is a situation of demographic explosion. The Pharaoh of old, haunted by the presence and increase of the children of Israel, submitted them to every kind of oppression and ordered that every male child born of the Hebrew women was to be killed. Today, not a few of the powerful of the earth act in the same way. They, too, are haunted by the current demographic growth and fear that the most prolific and poorest peoples represent a threat for the well-being and peace of their own countries. Consequently, rather than wishing to face and solve these serious problems with respect for the dignity of individuals and families and for every person's inviolable right to life, they prefer to promote and impose by whatever means, a massive program of birth control. Even the economic help which they would be ready to give is unjustly made conditional on the acceptance of an anti-birth policy. Humanity today offers us a truly alarming spectacle if we consider not only how extensively attacks on life are spreading, but also their unheard-of numerical proportion and the fact that they receive widespread and powerful support from a broad consensus on the part of society, from widespread legal approval and the involvement of certain sectors of healthcare personnel. As I emphatically stated at Denver, on the occasion of the Eighth World Youth Day, with time, the threats against life have not grown weaker. They are taking on vast proportions. They are not only threats coming from the outside, from the forces of nature or the canes who kill the Abels. No, they are scientifically and systematically programmed threats. The 20th century will have been an era of massive attacks on life, an endless series of wars, and a continual taking of innocent human life. False prophets and false teachers have had the greatest success. Aside from intentions, which can be varied and perhaps can seem convincing at times, especially if presented in the name of solidarity. We are, in fact, faced by an objective conspiracy against life, involving even international institutions, engaged in encouraging and carrying out actual campaigns to make contraception, sterilization and abortion widely available. Nor can it be denied that the mass media are often implicated in this conspiracy by lending credit to that culture which presents recourse to contraception, sterilization, abortion and even euthanasia as a mark of progress and a victory of freedom, while depicting as enemies of freedom and progress those positions which are unreservedly pro-life. The panorama described needs to be understood not only in terms of the phenomena of death which characterize it, but also in the variety of causes which determine it. The Lord's question 
What have you done? Seems almost like an invitation addressed to Cain to go beyond the material dimension of his murderous gesture in order to recognize in it all the gravity of the motives which occasioned it and the consequences which result from it. Decisions that go against life sometimes arise from difficult or even tragic situations of profound suffering, loneliness, a total lack of economic prospects, depression and anxiety about the future. Such circumstances can mitigate even to a notable degree subjective responsibility and the consequent culpability of those who make these choices which in themselves are evil. But today the problem goes far beyond the necessary recognition of these personal situations. It is a problem which exists at the cultural, social and political level, where it reveals its more sinister and disturbing aspect in the tendency ever more widely shared to interpret the above crimes against life as legitimate expressions of individual freedom, to be acknowledged and protected as actual rights. In this way, and with tragic consequences, a long historical process is reaching a turning point. The process which once led to discovering the idea of human rights, rights inherent in every person, and prior to any constitution and state legislation, is today marked by a surprising contradiction. Precisely in an age when the inviolable rights of the person are solemnly proclaimed, and the value of life is publicly affirmed, the very right to life is being denied or trampled upon, especially at the more significant moments of existence, the moment of birth and the moment of death. On the one hand, the various declarations of human rights and the many initiatives inspired by these declarations show that at the global level there is a growing moral sensitivity, more alert to acknowledging the value and dignity of every individual as a human being, without any distinction of race, nationality, religion, political opinion or social class. On the other hand, these noble proclamations are unfortunately contradicted by a tragic repudiation of them in practice. This denial is still more distressing, indeed more scandalous, precisely because it is occurring in a society which makes the affirmation and protection of human rights its primary objective and its boast. How can these repeated affirmations of principle be reconciled with a continual increase and in widespread justification of attacks on human life? How can we reconcile these declarations with a refusal to accept those who are weak and needy, or elderly, or those who have just been conceived? These attacks go directly against respect for life, and they represent a direct threat to the entire culture of human rights. It is a threat capable, in the end, of jeopardizing the very meaning of democratic coexistence. Rather than societies of people living together, our cities risk becoming societies of people who are rejected, marginalized, uprooted and oppressed. If we then look at the wider worldwide perspective, how can we fail to think that the very affirmation of the rights of individuals and peoples made in distinguished and international assemblies is a merely futile exercise of rhetoric, if we fail to unmask the selfishness of the rich countries which exclude poorer countries from access to development or make such access dependent on arbitrary prohibitions against procreation, setting up an opposition between development and man himself? Should we not question the very economic models often adopted by states which, also as a result of international pressures and forms of conditioning, cause and aggravate situations of injustice and violence in which the life of whole peoples is degraded and trampled upon? What are the roots of this remarkable contradiction? We can find them in the overall assessment of a cultural and moral nature, beginning with the mentality which carries the concept of subjectivity to an extreme, and even distorts it, and recognises as a subject of rights only the person who enjoys full, or at least incipient, autonomy, and who emerges from a state of total dependence on others. But how can we reconcile this approach with the exaltation of man as a being who is not to be used? The theory of human rights is based precisely on the affirmation 
that the human person, unlike animals and things, cannot be subjected to domination by others. We must also mention the mentality which tends to equate personal dignity with the capacity for verbal and explicit, or at least perceptible, communication. It is clear that on the basis of these presuppositions, there is no place in the world for anyone who, like the unborn or the dying, is a weak element in the social structure, or for anyone who appears completely at the mercy of others and radically dependent on them, and can only communicate through the silent language of a profound sharing of affection. In this case, it is force which becomes the criterion for choice and action in interpersonal relations and in social life. But this is the exact opposite of what a state ruled by law as a community in which the reasons of force are replaced by the force of reason, historically intended to affirm. At another level, the roots of the contradiction between the solemn affirmation of human rights and their tragic denial in practice lies in a notion of freedom which exalts the isolated individual in an absolute way and gives no place to solidarity, to openness to others, and service of them. While it is true that the taking of life not yet born or in its final stages is sometimes marked by a mistaken sense of altruism and human compassion, it cannot be denied that such a culture of death, taken as a whole, betrays a completely individualistic concept of freedom, which ends up by becoming the freedom of the strong, against the weak you have no choice but to submit. It is precisely in this sense that Cain's answer to the Lord's, Where is Abel your brother? can be interpreted, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Every man is his brother's keeper, because God entrusts us to one another. And it is also in view of this entrusting that God gives everyone freedom a freedom which possesses an inherently relational dimension. This is a great gift of the Creator, placed as it is at the service of the person and of his fulfilment through the gift of self and openness to others. But when freedom is made absolute in an individualistic way, it is emptied of its original content, and its very meaning and dignity are contradicted. There is an even more profound aspect which needs to be emphasized. Freedom negates and destroys itself and becomes a factor leading to the destruction of others when it no longer recognizes and respects its essential link with the truth. When freedom, out of a desire to emancipate itself from all forms of tradition and authority, shuts out even the most obvious evidence of an objective and universal truth, which is the foundation of personal and social life, then the person ends up by no longer taking as the sole and indisputable point of reference for his own choices the truth about good and evil, but only his subjective and changeable opinion, and indeed his selfish interest and whim. This view of freedom leads to a serious distortion of life in society. If the promotion of self is understood in terms of absolute autonomy, people inevitably reach the point of rejecting one another. Everyone else is considered an enemy from whom one has to defend oneself. Thus society becomes a mass of individuals placed side by side, but without any mutual bonds. Each one wishes to assert himself independently of the other, and in fact intends to make his own interests prevail. Still, in the face of other people's analogous interests, some kind of compromise must be found, if one wants a society in which the maximum possible freedom is guaranteed to each individual. In this way, a reference to common values and to a truth absolutely binding on everyone is lost, and social life ventures on to the shifting sands of complete relativism. At that point, everything is negotiable, everything is open to bargaining, even the first of the fundamental rights, the right to life. This is what is happening also at the level of politics and government. The original and inalienable right to life is questioned or denied on the basis of a parliamentary vote 
or the will of one part of the people, even if it is the majority. This is the sinister result of a relativism which reigns unopposed. The right ceases to be such, because it is no longer firmly founded on the inviolable dignity of the person, but is made subject to the will of the stronger part. In this way, democracy, contradicting its own principles, effectively moves towards a form of totalitarianism. The state is no longer the common home, where all can live together on the basis of principles of fundamental equality, but is transformed into a tyrant state, which arrogates to itself the right to dispose of the life of the weakest and most defenceless members, from the unborn child to the elderly, in the name of a public interest which is really nothing but the interest of one part. The appearance of the strictest respect for legality is maintained, at least when the laws permitting abortion and euthanasia are the result of a ballot in accordance with what are generally seen as the rules of democracy. Really, what we have here is only the tragic caricature of legality, the democratic ideal, which is only truly such when it acknowledges and safeguards the dignity of every human person, is betrayed in its very foundations. How is it still possible to speak of the dignity of every human person when the killing of the weakest and most innocent is permitted? In the name of what justice is the most unjust of discriminations practised? Some individuals are held to be deserving of defence, and others are denied that dignity. When this happens, the process leading to the breakdown of a genuinely human coexistence and the disintegration of the state itself has already begun. To claim the right to abortion, infanticide and euthanasia and to recognise that right in law means to attribute to human freedom a perverse and evil significance, that of an absolute power over others and against others. This is the death of true freedom. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In seeking the deepest roots of the struggle between the culture of life and the culture of death, we cannot restrict ourselves to the perverse idea of freedom mentioned above. We have to go to the heart of the tragedy, being experienced by modern man. The eclipse of the sense of God and of man typical of a social and cultural climate dominated by secularism, which, with its ubiquitous tentacles, succeeds at times in putting Christian communities themselves to the test. Those who allow themselves to be influenced by this climate easily fall into a sad, vicious circle. When the sense of God is lost, there is also a tendency to lose the sense of man, of his dignity and his life. In turn, the systematic violation of the moral law, especially in the serious matter of respect for human life and its dignity, produces a kind of progressive darkening of the capacity to discern God's living and saving presence. Once again, we can gain insight from the story of Abel's murder by his brother. After the curse imposed on him by God, Cain thus addresses the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will slay me. Cain is convinced that his sin will not obtain pardon from the Lord, and that his inescapable destiny will be to have to hide his face from him. If Cain is capable of confessing that his fault is greater than he can bear, it is because he is conscious of being in the presence of God and before God's just judgment. It is really only before the Lord that man can admit his sin and recognise its full seriousness. Such was the experience of David who, after having committed evil in the sight of the Lord and being rebuked by the prophet Nathan, exclaimed, My offences truly I know them. My sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done. Consequently, when the sense of God is lost, the sense of man is also threatened and poisoned, 
as the Second Vatican Council concisely states, Without the Creator, the creature would disappear. But when God is forgotten, the creature itself grows unintelligible. Man is no longer able to see himself as mysteriously different from other earthly creatures. He regards himself merely as one more living being, as an organism which, at most, has reached a very high stage of perfection. Enclosed in the narrow horizon of his physical nature, he is somehow reduced to being a thing, and no longer grasps the transcendent character of his existence as man. He no longer considers life as a splendid gift of God, something sacred, entrusted to his responsibility, and thus also to his loving care and veneration. Life itself becomes a mere thing, which man claims as his exclusive property, completely subject to his control and manipulation. Thus, in relation to life at birth or at death, man is no longer capable of posing the question of the truest meaning of his own existence, nor can he assimilate with genuine freedom these crucial moments in his own history. He is concerned only with doing, and using all kinds of technology, he busies himself with programming, controlling, and dominating birth and death. Birth and death, instead of being primary experiences demanding to be lived, become things to be merely possessed or rejected. Moreover, once all reference to God has been removed, it is not surprising that the meaning of everything else becomes profoundly distorted. Nature itself, from being martyr, mother, is now reduced to being matter, and is subjected to every kind of manipulation. This is the direction in which a certain technical and scientific way of thinking, prevalent in present-day culture, appears to be leading when it rejects the very idea that there is a truth of creation which must be acknowledged, or a plan of God for life which must be respected. Something similar happens when concern about the consequences of such a freedom without law leads some people to the opposite position of a law without freedom, as for example in ideologies which consider it unlawful to interfere in any way with nature, practically divinizing it. Again, this is a misunderstanding of nature's dependence on the plan of the Creator. Thus it is clear that the loss of contact with God's wise design is the deepest root of modern man's confusion, both when this loss leads to a freedom without rules and when it leaves man in fear of his freedom. By living as if God did not exist, man not only loses sight of the mystery of God, but also of the mystery of the world and the mystery of his own being. The eclipse of the sense of God and of man inevitably leads to a practical materialism, which breeds individualism, utilitarianism and hedonism. Here, too, we see the permanent validity of the words of the Apostle, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a base mind and to improper conduct. The values of being are replaced by those of having. The only goal which counts is the pursuit of one's own material well-being. The so-called quality of life is interpreted primarily or exclusively as economic efficiency, inordinate consumerism, physical beauty and pleasure, to the neglect of the more profound dimensions, interpersonal, spiritual and religious, of existence. In such a context, suffering, an inescapable burden of human existence, but also a factor of possible personal growth, is censored, rejected as useless, indeed opposed as an evil, always and in every way to be avoided. When it cannot be avoided, and the prospect of even some future well-being vanishes, then life appears to have lost all meaning, and the temptation grows in man to claim the right to suppress it. Within this same cultural climate, the body is no longer perceived as a properly personal reality, a sign and place of relations with others, with God and with the world. It is reduced to pure materiality. It is simply a complex of organs, functions and energies 
to be used according to the sole criteria of pleasure and efficiency. Consequently, sexuality too is depersonalized and exploited, from being the sign, place and language of love, that is, of the gift of self and acceptance of another, in all the other's richness as a person. It increasingly becomes the occasion and instrument for self-assertion and the selfish satisfaction of personal desires and instincts. Thus the original import of human sexuality is distorted and falsified, and the two meanings, unitive and procreative, inherent in the very nature of the conjugal act, are artificially separated. In this way the marriage union is betrayed, and its fruitfulness is subjected to the caprice of the couple. Procreation then becomes the enemy, to be avoided in sexual activity. If it is welcomed, this is only because it expresses a desire, or indeed the intention, to have a child at all costs, and not because it signifies the complete acceptance of the other, and therefore an openness to the richness of life which the child represents. In the materialistic perspective described so far, interpersonal relations are seriously impoverished. The first to be harmed are women, children, the sick or suffering, and the elderly. The criterion of personal dignity, which demands respect, generosity, and service, is replaced by the criterion of efficiency, functionality, and usefulness. Others are considered not for what they are, but for what they have, do, and produce. This is the supremacy of the strong over the weak. It is at the heart of the moral conscience that the eclipse of the sense of God and of man, with all its various and deadly consequences for life, is taking place. It is a question, above all, of the individual conscience, as it stands before God in its singleness and uniqueness. But it is also a question, in a certain sense, of the moral conscience of society. In a way, it too is responsible not only because it tolerates or fosters behaviour contrary to life, but also because it encourages the culture of death, creating and consolidating actual structures of sin which go against life. The moral conscience, both individual and social, is today subjected, also as a result of the penetrating influence of the media, to an extremely serious and mortal danger, that of confusion between good and evil precisely in relation to the fundamental right to life. A large part of contemporary society looks sadly like that humanity which Paul describes in his letter to the Romans. It is composed of men who by their wickedness suppress the truth. Having denied God and believing that they can build the earthly city without him, they become futile in their thinking, so that their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools carrying out works deserving of death, and they not only do them but approve those who practice them. When conscience, this bright lamp of the soul, calls evil good and good evil, it is already on the path to the most alarming corruption and the darkest moral blindness. And yet all the conditioning and efforts to enforce silence fail to stifle the voice of the Lord, echoing in the conscience of every individual. It is always from this intimate sanctuary of the conscience that a new journey of love, openness and service to human life can begin. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. It is not only the voice of the blood of Abel, the first innocent man to be murdered, which cries to God, the source and defender of life. The blood of every other human being who has been killed since Abel is also a voice raised to the Lord. In an absolutely singular way, as the author of the letter to the Hebrews reminds us, the voice of the blood of Christ, of whom Abel in his innocence is a prophetic figure, cries out to God, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. It is the sprinkled blood. A symbol and prophetic sign of it had been the blood of the sacrifices of the old covenant, whereby God expressed his will to communicate his own life to men, 
purifying and consecrating them. Now, all of this is fulfilled and comes true in Christ. His is the sprinkled blood which redeems, purifies and saves. It is the blood of the mediator of the new covenant, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This blood, which flows from the pierced side of Christ on the cross, speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Indeed, it expresses and requires a more radical justice, and above all it implores mercy. It makes intercession for the brethren before the Father, and it is the source of perfect redemption and the gift of new life. The blood of Christ, while it reveals the grandeur of the Father's love, shows how precious man is in God's eyes, and how priceless the value of his life. The Apostle Peter reminds us of this. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Precisely by contemplating the precious blood of Christ, the sign of his self-giving love, the believer learns to recognize and appreciate the almost divine dignity of every human being, and can exclaim with ever-renewed and grateful wonder, How precious must man be in the eyes of the Creator, if he gains so great a Redeemer! And if God gave his only Son, in order that man should not perish but have eternal life, Furthermore, Christ's blood reveals to man that his greatness, and therefore his vocation, consists in the sincere gift of self, precisely because it is poured out as the gift of life. The blood of Christ is no longer a sign of death, of definitive separation from the brethren, but the instrument of a communion which is richness of life for all. Whoever in the sacrament of the Eucharist drinks this blood and abides in Jesus, is drawn into the dynamism of his love and gift of life, in order to bring to its fullness the original vocation to love which belongs to everyone. It is from the blood of Christ that all draw the strength to commit themselves to promoting life. It is precisely this blood that is the most powerful source of hope. Indeed, it is the foundation of the absolute certitude that in God's plan Life will be victorious. And death shall be no more, exclaims the powerful voice which comes from the throne of God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And St. Paul assures us that the present victory over sin is a sign and anticipation of the definitive victory over death. When there shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In effect, signs which point to this victory are not lacking in our societies and cultures, strongly marked though they are by the culture of death. It would therefore be to give a one-sided picture which could lead to sterile discouragement if the condemnation of the threats to life were not accompanied by the presentation of the positive signs at work in humanity's present situation. Unfortunately, it is often hard to see and recognize these positive signs, perhaps also because they do not receive sufficient attention in the communications media. Yet how many initiatives of help and support for people who are weak and defenseless have sprung up and continue to spring up in the Christian community and in civil society, at the local, national and international level, through the efforts of individuals, groups, movements and organizations of various kinds. There are still many married couples who, with a generous sense of responsibility, are ready to accept children as the supreme gift of marriage. Nor is there a lack of families which, over and above their everyday service to life, are willing to accept abandoned children, boys and girls and teenagers in difficulty, handicapped persons, elderly men and women who have been left alone. Many centres in support of life, or similar institutions, are sponsored by individuals and groups which, with admirable dedication and sacrifice, offer moral and material support to mothers who are in difficulty and are tempted to have recourse to abortion. Increasingly, there are appearing in many places 
groups of volunteers prepare to offer hospitality to persons without a family, who find themselves in conditions of particular distress, or who need supportive environment to help them to overcome destructive habits and discover anew the meaning of life. Medical science, thanks to the committed efforts of researchers and practitioners, continues in its efforts to discover ever more effective remedies, treatments which were once inconceivable but which now offer much promise for the future, are today being developed for the unborn, the suffering, and those in acute or terminal stage of sickness. Various agencies and organizations are mobilizing their efforts to bring the benefits of the most advanced medicine to countries most afflicted by poverty and endemic diseases. In a similar way, national and international associations of physicians are being organized to bring quick relief to peoples affected by natural disasters, epidemics or wars. Even if a just international distribution of medical resources is still far from being a reality, how can we not recognize in the steps taken so far the sign of a growing solidarity among peoples, a praiseworthy human and moral sensitivity, and a greater respect for life? In view of laws which permit abortion, and in view of efforts which here and there have been successful to legalize euthanasia, Movements and initiatives to raise social awareness and defence of life have sprung up in many parts of the world. When, in accordance with their principles, such movements act resolutely, but without resorting to violence, they promote a wider and more profound consciousness of the value of life, and evoke and bring about a more determined commitment to its defence. Furthermore, how can we fail to mention all those daily gestures of openness sacrifice and unselfish care, which countless people lovingly make in families, hospitals, orphanages, homes for the elderly, and other centres or communities which defend life. Allowing herself to be guided by the example of Jesus, the Good Samaritan, and upheld by his strength, the Church has always been in the front line in providing charitable help. So many of her sons and daughters, especially men and women religious, in traditional and ever new forms, have consecrated and continue to consecrate their lives to God, freely giving of themselves out of love for their neighbour, especially for the weak and needy. These deeds strengthen the basis of the civilization of love and life, without which the life of individuals and of society itself loses its most genuinely human quality. Even if they go unnoticed and remain hidden to most people, Faith assures us that the Father, who sees in secret, not only will reward these actions, but already here and now, makes them produce lasting fruit for the good of all. Among the signs of hope, we should also count the spread at many levels of public opinion, the new sensitivity, ever more opposed to war as an instrument for the resolution of conflicts between peoples, and increasingly oriented to finding effective but non-violent means to counter the armed aggressor. In the same perspective, there is evidence of a growing public opposition to the death penalty, even when such a penalty is seen as a kind of legitimate defence on the part of society. Modern society, in fact, is the means of effectively suppressing crime by rendering criminals harmless without definitively denying them the chance to reform. Another welcome sign is the growing attention being paid to the quality of life and to ecology, especially in more developed societies, where people's expectations are no longer concentrated so much on problems of survival as on the search for an overall improvement of living conditions. Especially significant is the reawakening of an ethical reflection on issues affecting life. The emergence and ever more widespread development of bioethics is promoting more reflection and dialogue between believers and non-believers, as well as between followers of different religions, on ethical problems, including fundamental issues pertaining to human life. This situation, with its lights and shadows, ought to make us all fully aware that we are facing an enormous and dramatic clash between good and evil, death and life, the culture of death and the culture of life. We find ourselves not only faced with, but necessarily in the midst of this conflict, we are all involved, and we all share in it, with the inescapable responsibility of choosing to be unconditionally pro-life. 
For us, too, Moses' invitation rings out loud and clear. See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your descendants may live. This invitation is very appropriate for us who are called day by day to the duty of choosing between the culture of life and the culture of death. But the call of Deuteronomy goes even deeper, for it urges us to make a choice which is properly religious and moral. It is a question of giving our own existence a basic orientation and living the law of the Lord faithfully and consistently. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His ordinances, then you shall live. Therefore choose life, that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His word, and cleaving to Him. For that means life to you and length of days. The unconditional choice for life reaches its full religious and moral meaning when it flows from, is formed by, and nourished by faith in Christ. Nothing helps us so much to face positively the conflict between death and life in which we are engaged as faith in the Son of God, who became man and dwelt among men, so that they may have life and have it abundantly. It is a matter of faith in the risen Lord, who has conquered death, faith in the blood of Christ that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. With the light and strength of this faith, therefore, in facing the challenges of the present situation, the Church is becoming more aware of the grace and responsibility which come to her from her Lord of proclaiming, celebrating and serving the gospel of life. Let us pray. O Mary, bright dawn of the new world, mother of the living, to you do we entrust the cause of life. Look down, O mother, upon the vast numbers of babies not allowed to be born, of the poor whose lives are made difficult, of men and women who are victims of brutal violence, of the elderly and the sick killed by indifference or out of misguided mercy. Grant that all who believe in your Son may proclaim the gospel of life with honesty and love to the people of our time. Obtain for them the grace to accept the gospel as a gift ever new, the joy of celebrating it with gratitude throughout their lives and the courage to bear witness to it resolutely in order to build, together with all people of goodwill, the civilization of truth and love to the praise and glory of God the Creator and Lover of life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.